If your big plans this year include your big day, plan your look with Indochino. Customize every detail of a blazer, suit, or tuxedo online or at a showroom with an expert style guide. Then sit back for delivery straight to your door. Suits start at just $449 and premium fitted shirts at just $89. Go to Indochino.com and use code NEWCHAPTER for 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O dot com, code NEWCHAPTER. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com slash workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author Peter Goralnik joins Nate to talk about his book, Looking to Get Lost, Adventures in Music and Writing. In this episode, Peter and Nate discuss the nature of creativity, the democratic nature of art, legends Peter has known like Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Howlin' Wolf, and Colonel Tom Parker, as well as Dick Curlis, a relatively unknown country singer who strongly impacted Peter's life. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Peter Goralnik, who's going to talk about his new book, Looking to Get Lost, Adventures in Music and Writing. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nate. It's a real treat to have you here. Um, really enjoyed the book. In some ways, I think it works great as an introduction to your work for anybody who hasn't read your wonderful biographies of Elvis Presley and Sam Cooke and Sam Phillips and the books about Robert Johnson and Soul. But it's also kind of a summation of your career. Did you intend it that way? I like what you said. I, li- I like it being the introduction rather than looking back. So, <laughs> I always want to, Sam Phillips said you always want to look forward. I mean, no, I, I think it's it certainly is an extension of all the work it's intended to be. And in some ways by... Uh, taking, you know, my own experience as kind of the through line for a lot of diverse experiences, a lot of other people's diverse experiences, like Tammy Wynette or Howlin' Wolf or, you know, Skip James. I think it it becomes a look back at a lot of things, but I hope it's a look forward too. So I, I, I'm going to take your introduction as the as the way to look at it. <laughs> That's the spirit it was intended. And you open the book with sort of a thesis statement. You say, simply put, this is a book about creativity. And then you hone in a little bit further on two points. And and one of the things that's um, you say, what has always fascinated me, apart from the idiosyncratic nature of each and every person I've ever written about, it's the imaginative impulse that drives them all, not just the singers and songwriters, but Colonel Tom Parker himself comes out of, the, uh, of your telling as a creative person, um, a fabulous and inventor. 
Right, right. Well, he invented a whole new way of doing business. He changed the entire music business. And people might think, oh, that's because Elvis was such a success. But that has nothing to do with it. He had changed it before Elvis came into the picture, long before with Eddie Arnold, who was the biggest uh, star in country music probably to this day. I mean, it, it's uh, he, in, the, in the way in which he dominated country music through promotional techniques that uh, the Colonel uh, developed. But yeah, no, I, I see... Uh, I don't see creativity or the kind of uh, creative response as being limited to people who uh, are involved in the arts. I mean, the people that I'm drawn to, uh, they could be doing anything. They could be uh, uh, one. Uh, they they could be it could be an electrician. It could be a plumber. It could be anybody who takes. But it's really somebody who sees people on the broadband. Somebody who sees people not as types, not as falling into categories, but somebody who ta and who takes their work as something that they embrace, and embrace as a as a, a form of discovery. So yeah, I, I mean, in a way, that's that that's what it's about. I think one of the things you know, you mentioned looking back. One of the things that struck me in terms of writing the book, and one of the ways in which the book developed in ways I hadn't entirely expected, was how I came to see that all the interviews had been about creativity. All the interviews had been trying to drive at the question. I mean, with Tammy, why not? She, at least as I saw it, I mean, I'm not the world's greatest expert on Tammy, why not, or anything else, but she had not been asked that often about what it was that drove her work, what it was that led her to write the songs, how she saw the songs as expressing herself, how, what the limitation was of working in a commercial uh, world in which women were not taken as seriously as men. So those are the kinds of things I pursued with her. And it wasn't that I was trying to pursue a thesis. I was, I just simply took her seriously as I took everybody that I wrote about, whether it was Merle Haggard or Highland Wolf or Charlie Rich or, you know, whoever. So, uh, so in a sense, it became a, it became a theme that I recognized and that I wanted to summarize to some extent in the introduction. And in addition to that, a second thing that thread that goes the way all the way through this that you bring up in the introduction is that you say um, none of the people I have ever written about have ever voiced their aesthetic views, their views about art or music or self-expression in anything but purely democratic terms. Elaborate on that a little bit. Well, again, that was something that came home to me. It has come home to me more and more over the years. I am not unaware that the political views of the people that I talk to, which I don't talk to them about, vary widely. They're, they inevitably vary wide, widely. And um, I might or might not agree with many of those. Uh, and I'm not even suggesting whether those views are democratic with a small v or not. But they're absolutely democratic in terms of their music. There isn't a single person I've ever uh, interviewed or written about who hasn't been wide open to every type of music, irrespective of racial, ethnic, or any other kind of uh, uh, bounds. And, uh, you know, so that I, it just struck me that it's every one of them is committed to their art. Every one of them is committed to their music or their writing. Every one of them is committed, as Sam Phillips uh, said, to listening with ears all around their head. I mean, if it's music. And that, that's what I, that's what one of the things that just struck me it, as I thought about the collection as a whole, as I thought about this, this widely variegated, variegated group of people 
all of whom I'd met over many years, some of whom I was writing about for the first time here, like Dick Curlis, I thought how the one thing they had in common, well, the two things they had in common, one was a work ethic, which people don't often credit. The other was a receptive, a receptiveness or a receptivity to everything that came their way and a way of uh, taking it all in and creating work that was original to themselves. And, and you've got a really beautiful list that I'm going to run through because it's so powerful in terms of expressing this dem democratic aesthetic that you're describing all your subjects as having. And for whatever reasons, it really touched me when you listed the inspirations of these artists and the way that they're all they, they did have their ears wide open, like Bobby Blue Bland took equally from uh, the, the fiery sermons of Reverend C.L. Franken and Perry Como's easygoing pop. Ray Charles cited both Hank Williams and the apocalyptic five blind, boy, five blind boys lead singer Archie Brownlee. Bill Monroe, um, you know, often seen as the keeper of a very isolated Appalachian tradition, always pointed to a black blues player named Arnold Schultz as one of the formative influences of his life. And you know, these days there's so much talk about cultural appropriation, but you emphasize, you know, art is made to be shared. Yeah, no, I mean, I think cultural appropriation is somewhat of a misunderstanding or even a misnomer, because I don't think there's any art of any kind, I don't think there's any music of any kind, I don't think there's any literature of any, of any kind that exists in isolation. And so much of what is taken in finds its way in unexpected ways, in ways that can be uh, perceived, or sometimes in ways that can't be altogether diagrammed in their art. I mean, where, does, where do the short stories of Alice Monroe, for example, come from? Or if you ask Helen Wolf, where does his music came, come from? Well, you hear about Charlie Patton. Everybody would expect to hear about Charlie Patton, who was his inspiration, his blues inspiration. But then you hear about one who was one of the greatest influences upon his work. It was Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music. And then, much to your surprise, you hear he met Jimmy Rogers when he was just when Wolf was just thirteen or fourteen, and and uh, Jimmy Rogers took him aside and very kindly showed him how he performed his yodel. And as Wolf said, that's where I got my howl from. I adapted it. I lowered the key, you know. But I mean, it, it's there's a generosity there. And who is, you know, who is appropriating from whom? I mean, why is it that, let's say, if Elvis sings a song by Arthur Big Boy Crudup as an homage to someone he very much admired, there was no commercial gain in singing a song by Arthur Big Boy Crudup, not one that could be perceived in 1954. But where is he appropriating any more from Arthur, Arthur Crudup than he is from Bill Monroe? Because what does Elvis's, you know, did Elvis grow up in the Appalachia, you know, in Appalachia? Did he grow up singing bluegrass music? Not really. He heard that. He heard the Blackwood Brothers and the Statesmen. He heard, uh, you know, Arthur Big Boy Crudup. He says he first heard him in Tupelo, and I never understood whether he heard him in person or you know, down in Shake Rag, say, or at the, uh, he heard the uh, Sacred Steel players at religious revivals at the end of his street, the street that he lived in, which was a mixed street in which the Presleys were one of the few white families. He would go down to this open field. And I only found out recently from um, um, uh, Robert uh, Stone, who's researched the Sacred Steel playing to such an extent that that's where the Sacred Steel I, I, I can't quite remember the name of the church that they come out of, but uh, that's where they would hold their revivals. So, I mean, it's kind of like, 
who, who, you know, who enjoys uh, polka music? Polka music played a big part in country music. And so who has a monopoly on any of these things? And I don't think anybody, I think it's in the air. And once you, once you invent it, or once the, uh, the systems for mass dissemination of music or just mass dissemination of communication, you know, once radio and the telephone have been invented and later other uh, evolutions, uh, you know, uh, greater evolutions since then. Uh, but once, once you had these agencies of mass dissemination, nobody existed in isolation. No, even the remotest creek or holler, nobody was free from, the, from influences from the outside. And let's um, hear a song and then talk a little bit more specifically about some of the artists that you discuss in the book. And let's hear Skip James, Devil Got My Woman. was Skip James 1931 recording of Devil Got My Woman, which for a long time was one of the most obscure records in existence. Only a few hundred maybe were printed and only a few dozen or less than a dozen have ever been found. And Skip retired into complete obscurity and then was rediscovered in the 60s by a new generation of blues fans who brought him back out. And I think about Skip James and, and you talk about him and Robert Johnson early in the book. And you talk about early on your sense of mission. You wanted to shout these names from the heavens. You wanted people to know who Skip James was and why he mattered. And I just have to say, you know, your generation did such a good job at that, that people like not so much Skip James, but definitely Robert Johnson is much more familiar to people in the 21st century than say somebody like Ethel Waters, who was an infinitely bigger star uh, in the 1920s and 30s than, than these bluesmen. Do you ever feel like you maybe went too far <laughs> with the, the success of, of trumpeting these names you wanted to, to shout out? Well, maybe in terms of, of someone like Skip James for whom rediscovery led to great disappointment. Skip James genuinely believed First of all, he believed, and he was correct in believing this, that he was a genius and was not reluctant to tell you so. But he also believed that his rediscovery would lead to a kind of stardom that it never did. And, you know, I saw Skip James dozens of times over the years and never saw him with more than 30 or 40 people there. Other than the first time I saw him at Newport, right after his rediscovery, when I saw him at a blues workshop with hundreds of people in the field, uh, you know, and out in front of him, and and I'm sure in the evening concerts he played for larger crowds, but so it, you know, in a sense, but but we never know how these things are going to work out for ourselves or for anybody else. You can't you can't look back. But this has become a subject, I think, of considerable controversy in recent years. That somehow or other, uh, by focusing on artists who are obscure, you're distorting what the popular trends of the time were so that somebody like Ethel Waters is unfairly neglected. And I don't have any doubt. I mean, everybody should get attention for what they did. But I have big doubt about whether popularity per se, whether what is most popular at the moment, and let's leave music aside, let's say the best soloists and books, or it doesn't matter. Those have never been my guide or my gauge to what I'm interested in. I mean, if you want to read a great book right now, 
uh, Read the Cold Millions by Jess Walter. I don't care if it's number one on the bestseller list. I don't care if this reviewer liked it or that reviewer didn't. It, it's a work that will live uh, forever, I think, like many of his other books or Alice Monroe's short stories or Grace Paley's short stories. These don't have to be household names to be worthwhile. And I don't, you know, and I think that this is a way in which people have, uh, it, this is um, like, what do you call it, Re, you know, revisionist history where you go back and you say, oh, well, this, this is really what we should be focusing on are the people who were most popular at the time. We've, and I, I just don't, I don't think that's true. You should be focusing on what is of worth. And if John Dunn is neglected for, you know, 300 years, and then people recognize his poetry after all that time, or, you know, Herman Melville's Moby Dick for 75 years just disappears and then comes back as one of the great works of American literature. Well, great. I mean, that's, it, 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 but if Charles Dickens is one of the most popular novelists of his time, that doesn't in any way mean he was less than somebody who was neglected. It, it, his work still holds up. So I, I, I think, uh, but you know, when you picked Skip James and Robert Johnson, Skip James is one of the contradictions of what I just said. His, his music really did grow up in a kind of splendid isolation. I mean, where does he grew up in a, uh, a town called Bentonia in Mississippi, and the tradition in Bentonia did not export and didn't take in a lot of other uh, influences, so that his music continues to be uh, the kind of music that Gerard you know, Manley Hopkins wrote about, you know, the strange beauty. I mean, I forget what, is, what the term is, but, you know, it's very, very odd, very peculiar, and very, very beautiful, and it stands alone, or, or stands alone with other residents of that town from that time. So, whereas Robert Johnson took in all kinds of influences and made of those influences something absolutely unique, a, a you know, a kind of, each of his songs is, uh, composed in a way that very few blues songs are. I mean, with a conscious thought of coherence and of how they go together and how the imagery and the playing and the approach to the singing, which differs from song to song, all uh, advance the same artistic purpose. And one thread that you connect explicitly in the book that I thought was powerful, because, you know, you talk about Skip James and you talk about when you met him and you'd asked him why he quit making music in the first place. And he said it was disappointment. I mean, I only made, you know, I can't remember the exact number, but like 40 bucks from all my records and, and there was no impact and I was disappointed. So I quit. And, and, then, and then he you know, was fated to live through that same disappointment again in the 60s when he was rediscovered. But the thread that you connect is that his greatest song, which we just heard, Devil Got My Woman, is a very big inspiration for Robert Johnson's greatest song, Hellhound on My Trail. So some of these people, for all his gifts, Skip James in some ways was sort of fated to pass this torch on to Robert Johnson, who had this gift for bringing it out to more people. Well, look at somebody like Robert Johnson, who was basically rediscovered in, uh, you know, 1990, uh, when the box set came out with all of his recordings on it. I mean, people, there was the great LP that came out in 61, King of the Delta Blues Singers, which is what turned on a whole generation. But he, but, but his box, the box set of his recordings went platinum. Let's assume for a minute that he was never rediscovered. His music had already entered into the music of Muddy Waters, of Robert Junior Lockwood, of Sonny Boy Williamson, of Elmore James. They performed the songs that, uh, and, and of many others. I mean, I'm, I'm just really touching on, on a few. Uh, and they became central 
to the development of the blues, you know, the post-war blues style. And if nobody had ever known that their music came from Robert Johnson's, so what? His music would have had that influence. His music did have that influence. They carried the torch of his music. They carried the inspiration of his music. They carried on the memory of his music and the memory of his of his performance in a way that, and that that's kind of the point of the first uh, uh, chapter, subject chapter that I have in the book on Robert Johnson is we shouldn't be congratulating ourselves on having discovered Robert Johnson. It doesn't matter at all that we discovered Robert Johnson. He's the one who who made the music that inspired so much other music. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with millions of people discovering it. It has to do with the impact, the direct impact it had on so many people from that generation. If you just take Muddy Waters, Elmore James, Robert Jr. Lockwood, Sonny Boy Williamson, I'm forgetting a bunch more. Uh, you can see how that music spread out without any, without anyone in the white world, in the majoritarian world, ever being aware of it at all. But then it was discovered by people in the white world. First, John Hammond, who wanted to include Robert Johnson in this famous Spirituals to Swing concert at Carnegie Hall. Johnson unfortunately passed away before he could do that. But then Hammond put together the album at Columbia in 61, which was the vehicle for people like Brian Jones and Keith Richards discovering Robert Johnson, which leads them on this journey that kind of culminates. Uh, I talked to Brian Jones biographer Paul Trinka a while back, and it, you know he asserts that Brian Jones' ultimate accomplishment, that the biggest thing Brian Jones ever did by assembling the Rolling Stones with this vision of we're going to introduce rhythm and blues music to the British public and and the American public, and that, that his pinnacle was a moment that you zero in on as one of your peak media experiences, which was seeing Howlin' Wolf on Shindig. Yeah, with the how with the Rolling Stones at his feet, having introduced him. I think it was was it Brian Jones and Mick Jagger who both introduced him. I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely, it was. And and Brian Jones even tells uh, Jack Good the the compare to shut up. It's time to hear Howlin' Wolf. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, no, no. It was just such an. At one point, the New York Times ran some kind of a supplement about what I took to be the greatest cultural moments or the greatest pop cultural moments of the 20th century, or at least the second half of the 20th century. And I was on. <laughs> you know, I had no hesitation in um, in naming and describing Howlin' Wolf on Shindig as one of the key moments, one of you know, in, in my life, one of the key cultural moments of the century. But so it was an astonishing performance in which uh, he's introduced by the Rolling Stones. He comes sort of ambling out there, sort of swaying in his walk. He picks up his harmonica. Uh, it's upside down. He, you know, turns it in his hand, these gigantic hands, and he just roars into this song that just rocked the entire stage and everybody on it. I think Billy Preston was playing on this on the, uh, uh, you know, on keyboards, and uh, I believe James Burton was playing guitar. But it was just like they just elevated, and everybody was elevated by it. But my only point is. And, and I give great credit to Brian Jones, and I give great credit. I mean, don't forget, Eric Clapton was also inspired at the same time by the same music. And, we, and I often said, I mean, the, that first album, King of the Delta Blues Singers, as I understood it, I went to Columbia, and it sold about 15,000 copies worldwide when it came out. And I've often said that I think over the years I've met all 15,000 pe of the people <laughs> you know, <laughs> who bought that record. But I mean, the point is it affected us all the same. But my only point is, had none of us ever heard that music, the music would still exist. 
and the music would still have existed through the living, uh, not just the living memory, but the, through the music of Muddy Waters, all these others. And so it's great that we got to hear it. I mean, it, it's something that's irreplaceable in my life, that just from the moment I first heard it, when I was uh, uh, 17 years old, I was a freshman at Columbia, I'd go down to Sam Goody's on, uh, I think it was on 50th Street, uh, go down on the Broadway 7th Avenue line, and had no idea this was coming out and picked up that and uh, Big Joe Williams' Piney Woods Blues on the Delmark label and went back to my, my lonely room, my solitary room. <laughs> and don't feel too sorry for me. But I went back and I just listened and listened and listened all day to that music. I mean, it just it just was so uh, cataclysmic. I mean, but cataclysmic makes it seem like it, you know, knocked me over the head. It wasn't that it knocked me over the head. It just got into my heart and soul and you know mind and brain and bones and everything and it's never left me so it was i mean i wouldn't give it up for anything but i'm just saying it it, it mattered and nor would i give up howling wolf on shindig i mean I'd, I'd say the only uh i give it the first three places on the greatest um you know um, greatest moment on television of all time with the wire maybe occupying fourth place <laughs> and let's hear it let's hear howlin wolf doing how many more years the mighty Howlin' Wolf doing how many more years backed up by the great shindig house band with James Burton and Billy Preston that you already mentioned and yeah this is just such a cultural collision seeing this middle-aged African-American man playing on a show that was aimed at white teenagers in America and you know the Beatles and the Stones and all these British people who came over here having idolized these African-American performers get over here and realize most of white America has no idea of all these black geniuses in their midst. And so that was a triumphant moment for Ryan Jones and the Rolling Stones to bring Howlin' Wolf to a mass audience and a mass audience that he's held. I mean, Howlin' Wolf, you know, if you ask music fans who are in their 20s and 30s, I'm not just, you know, every idiot off the street, but people who are music fans, they'll know who Howlin' Wolf is. They might not know who Johnny Mathis is. I was just doing a poll yesterday and it was kind of shocking how few people under 40 knew who Johnny Mathis was. But that's a discursion. I want to go to something else that that you said in the book and, and another theme you bring up, which a, a consistent theme through this book is people's vision coming into focus. And sometimes people need help in bringing their vision to focus. And sometimes they did it on their own. And we'll talk about a couple of those examples, but there's a Joe Tex quote that you end your introduction that I just thought was just a beautiful thing. And the whole story you tell of Joe Tex was very touching. You've got this quote, um, Joe Tex, one of the most extroverted philosophers I've ever met, cheerfully declared, I've enjoyed this life. I was glad I was able to come up out of creation and look all around and see a little bit. Grass and trees and cars, fish and steaks, potatoes. Everywhere I've gone, I can always go back and I can always find a friend. I don't go trying to make nobody like me. I just be me, you know, and it has worked out. And I just found that really beautiful. And and the story you tell of Joe Tex, I mean, he's the only member of the Soul Clan, which is a sort of super group of soul singers that isn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, despite your best efforts. Yeah. And and he 
had numerous hits, skinny legs and all, and, and, and had hits into the disco era and was a big star. And yet it took Joe Tex a while to, to find his vision. And he'd, he'd been on the scene, you know, he's a contemporary of people like Clyde McFadder and James Brown and Ray Charles, people who were making their mark in the mid fifties, somebody like he's older than little Willie John, who was, you know, over and done with uh, having blazed a brilliant trail across the sky in the fifties. But it took a white man named Buddy Killen to help bring Joe Tex's vision to life. And even then, it wasn't on their first, second, third. It was on their fourth try before they got a hit. Well, yeah. And, and when they got the hit, which was, uh, you know, Joe said, I can't sing it. I'm hoarse. And Buddy just recycled the, the same chorus over and over and then hold what you got. Uh, and Joe, well, the first time he heard it on the radio, said, Take, take it off. Don't play it. You know, we weren't supposed to release that. That's not supposed to be. And yet <laughs> when the first, uh, you know, when the first royalty checks came in or when it started just climbing up the charts, you know, all the way to number one on the R&B charts. And I'm not sure how high in the pop charts. He, he, Joe came to recognize its value. But the same thing happened to Johnny Cash. I mean, what one of the things that has been that, by the way, that is such a wonderful quote. And it so represents Joe's spirit. He was such a vibrant spirit. He just could lift you up. He was an uplifting spirit. And he enjoyed things so much and driving around Navasota and meeting all his relatives and so many of his friends and getting the history of his life and the history of his family was just an incredible experience for me. But uh, no, Johnny Cash, when he heard his first song on the radio, uh, Sam Phillips had said, you know, I think it would go better if you speeded it up a little bit. And he sang it the one time fast, faster than he had envisioned the song. And then when he heard, and then, but he didn't think that was what Sam Phillips was going to put it, was going to put out. And then when he heard it on the radio, he called him, Mr. Phillips, you've got to take it off. You've got to take that. But again, through, this was a, you know, creative collaboration. He came to see the value of taking the song in that way. And he came to see uh, uh, Sam Phillips's perspective on the song as adding something to it. But so many of the people that I've spoken to spoke of the thrill uh, of hearing their music on the radio for the first time. And in a sense, it, you know, it's that word reify, you know, it made it real for them, it made a thing of it. And it, all their aspirations and all the dreams that they had had and all the moments that they had had of somehow imagining that they would be able to reach other people with their music. Uh, and I think the same holds true for, for books. I mean, I think Lee Smith would say the same thing about her novels. And I know I would say, somebody asked me the other day, you know, was it as exciting to get the first copy of this new book of uh, Looking to Get Lost as it was getting your first book? And it was. It is. It's just like I knew what it was going to look like. We've been in. Now you can see it on, you know, on your computer screen. You can see the entire thing. But getting the actual book and hearing their music on the, it some on on the radio made it more made it real for people, in a way that uh, is so many of the people I've interviewed, in a way that just imagining it hadn't done. And let's hear a quick word from our sponsors and come back. And I want to talk more about Johnny Cash and Sam Phillips. And I was so glad you brought up Johnny Cash uh, right after the Joe Tex story, because what he says about Sam Phillips in the book is really sums it up, the role of somebody like Sam Phillips or Buddy Killen. It says, Sam was still a genius and that he knew what the business was all about. He could see me as I was, and I couldn't. He could see Elvis as he was, and Elvis couldn't. Elvis wanted to sing a slow love song for his mother, and Sam Phillips saw him as what he was, 
a national hero with a new style of music just turning the whole world around. That is such a powerful quote, and it sums up the role of Sam Phillips and what and the impact of Elvis Presley so brilliantly. Um, I, I don't really have a follow-up there. I just want to thank you for capturing that. And and it, and and you know the book on Sam Phillips. You know, one of the themes I'm trying to carve out on this this series is that there's more than just musicians that that and sometimes the musicians can do multiple roles like you talk about ray charles and he was kind of his own a and r man and, and i'll ask you about that in a second but somebody like sam phillips for for the sun stable of jerry lee lewis and elvis and johnny cash and carl perkins he crystallized the vision he saw what they could be just as he'd done earlier for Ike turner and helen wolf and bb king and you know, Buddy Cullen did it for Joe Tex and, and Billy Sherrill did it for Tammy Wynette. That these these people have a big role to play in this in this and I don't know what you would call it. You you refer at one point to Tom Parker and Elvis Presley as Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. And in a way they were like that, but Colonel Parker didn't get involved in the music the way that somebody like Sam Phillips did. No, Colonel Parker didn't get involved in the music at all. One thing about Colonel Parker, that he's never been given credit for. In fact, he's been given credit for very little. But uh, one thing was how much he believed in Elvis Presley's talent. And from the very beginning, when Elvis wrote to him after the after he signed with RCA and said, you're like a father to me. I mean, it's an amazing, it's a telegram, actually. I don't think Elvis ever wrote a letter, as far as I know. But uh, but to the, uh, to the letter that the Colonel wrote to Elvis after Aloha from Hawaii, uh, in which he said, you and I know what you can do. You and I believe in your talent. You and I alone are the ones who conceived of this show, and you were the one who could execute it. I was the one who could promote it. But, I mean, there's that belief. I mean, the, the Colonel is, is a unique case, and I, I can't really relate him uh, totally to, I mean, I'm not trying to diminish him in any way, but his role was was different from anybody else that uh, that I write about. But in the case, see, Buddy Killen, it seems to me, in a sense, was a kind of cheerleader. He just genuinely liked liked Joe Tex. He saw his talent, and he just was enthused about it and and conveyed a kind of enthusiasm to Joe Tex that I think invested Joe with belief in what he was doing. Sam Phillips, on the other hand, was always like a practicing you know psychologist or psychiatrist. I mean, he was somebody who. Uh, it's funny, towards the end of his life, my father was saying, he said to me something that really surprised me. He said, you know, when I was just very young, when I was eight or nine years old, I could sense what was going on with every person in the room. I could sense, and my father was not at all like this. He was not a mystic. He wasn't, he was a very practical person, a very, you know, everything was about reality. But he said this, uh, you know, that he could sense what was going on with each of these adults in the room, for the most part, were Russian immigrants and uh, speaking Russian, which he didn't speak. But he said if there was a problem going on with their marriage and stuff, that was what Sam Phillips, he could divine what was going on. And in many ways, Sam Phillips is uh, the model for what I hope to be able to do in what I write. I'm not claiming, you know, claiming anything, but I mean, that's what I want to do is to write about each of these people from the inside out. I want to understand what it is that, they, that they're feeling, what it is that they were feeling at a particular moment. I mean, you mentioned the Ray Charles. The whole chapter on Ray Charles, which is something that's newly written for the book, 
goes back over material, you know, over an interview that I did with Ray uh, for Sweet Soul Music back in 1980 and or 1981. And, um, but it focuses on this moment when everything coalesced for him to discover and define and refine his own style. And I tried to create it as a dramatic event and tried to see it, to write it from within his perspective, but also from within the perspective of several other people who were part of that that I knew, like Terry Wexler, whom I knew quite well, Ahmed Erdogan, whom I knew less well, but knew him somewhat, and Zena Sears, a wonderful DJ in, uh, in Atlanta, who was involved in, uh, in the recording of I Got a Woman. And, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to make it a fluid event. I didn't, I mean, what I try to do in each of these profiles is to create something that's living at the moment, you know, not static, not just a re rehearsed or a rehash of, you know, well, this happened and that happened, but to do something from within. And that's what Sam Phillips did with all of his artists. He saw each of them entirely differently. Johnny Cash was not Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis was not Howlin' Wolf. But all of them were driven by the same impulse, by the same need to express themselves. And his role was to provide an opportunity, a forum, and a context in which they could best express themselves, often in ways that they didn't even recognize they wanted to express themselves, uh, you know, in that particular way. And you've got two leads I want to follow up on. You mentioned your father, and you've got a really touching passage in the book, um, a couple of passages about your family and, and members of your family that, that influenced you and contributed to your creativity. But in the chapter, uh, My Father, My Grandfather, and Ray Charles, you've got this thing that's sort of a summation of the book in some ways, that you talk about Elvis Presley and Sam Cooke, both of whom you wrote biographies, and you refer to them as the two figures with whom I have spent most of the last 20 years. They both met arguably tragic ends. Each had lofty goals, which for all the, their success, like all lofty goals, could never be said to have been fully achieved, but they never abandoned their aspirations. Not, before he long, not long before he died, I spoke to Ray Charles on the phone. He was describing the spiritual he had sung 40 years earlier at Sam Cooke's funeral. I gave my heart to it, man. Everything that came out of me that day was truly genuine. There was nothing fake about it. That's all we, and then this is you, say that's all we can do. But as Ray Charles would have been the first to suggest, it's what we must do. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know where to go with that. I don't have a question, <laughs> but, but I just want to thank you for putting that together. That is really powerful. And it gets to, you know, when you think about it, and, and the average person, I'm never going to achieve a 50th or a thousandth of what Elvis Presley or Sam Cooke did. But knowing, you know, reading the stories as you tell them and, and realizing that it's sort of fractal, you know, if, if your life is just trying to raise your kids and do your job and, and be a decent person, the, the level of challenges are still sort of on the same scale for somebody like Elvis Presley. He's just operating at a bigger scale. He's, he's conquering the world. He's trying to sum up American music in one great statement. So, right. You know, and, and, and. But we all have to do our best, and that's absolutely vital. And I want to play one more song, and then and then hit you up to tell the story. And this is Jerry Lee Lewis duetting with Solomon Burke on "Who Will the Next Fool Be."
Jerry Lee Lewis and Solomon Burke, not that long ago, I think 15 years ago or so, 10 years ago or so, duet in on the song, Who Will the Next Fool Be? And you tell a great story about that, that apparently Jerry Lee didn't know Solomon that well and, and didn't pay much mind to him until he sits down with him on this recorded performance. That's a big deal. They're making you know a video of, of an album he put out. He's got Ronnie Wood on stage. It's a superstar production. But like you say, when you watch the video, you can see the recognition when Jerry Lee hears Solomon Burke, that power, he's immediately gets it. And and you tell the story that they became friends for the last few years of their lives and they bonded over their mutual admiration of Gene Autry. Well, yeah, no, it, it, and I should mention, I'm, I'm really glad you played that song. And that came about entirely uh, through the arrangement of Steve Bing, who had, uh, was such a tremendous supporter of Jerry Lee. And then I introduced him to Solomon, and he became equally not a supporter of Solomon, but a fan of Solomon's. And he brought Jerry Lee and Solomon together. And they just had such a well, you can watch in the uh, not on the radio or not on the podcast, but you know, on, on uh, YouTube or whatever. Uh, you can see Jerry Lee's uh, the moment that Solomon opens his mouth on who, uh, who will the next fool be. And then they, they also do today, I started loving you again, although that's not quite as, 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 uh, it doesn't have the full emotional impact, but but you can see Jerry Lee's reaction. It's just like he just snaps too. He just wakes up. Oh my God! Listen to that guy sing, and that reengages him in the song, and you see him far more emotive and far more engaged in performing the song when uh, uh, you know after, after Solomon has entered. And they did become good friends. They didn't see each other all the time, but they, whenever they did, they called upon common experience, they called upon common, uh, you know, religious belief. I mean, not the same sect, not the same. <laughs> Solomon was not in the Assemblies of God. Uh, Jerry Lee was not in Solomon's church, which was the church of, uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, oh, God, I'm, I'm forgetting the name. But, I'm blanking um, on that one. You know, it was a house of God for all people, let it all, and then Solomon added the words, let it all hang out. It was his grandmother's church, house of God for all people, but Solomon liked adding it, let it all hang out. But and Jerry Lee was not a member of that church, although he may have been spiritually just a Solomon, but they just connected so, uh, Jerry Lee and Solomon, in their love of music, and both of them. Gene Autry is a, Gene Autry and Jimmy Rogers are figures who run all the way through the book. I mean, so many of the, uh, artists, so many of the singers and writers and, you know, just were uh, inspired by by Gene Autry. Somebody, again, you, you mentioned, uh, I forget who it was, we don't listen to Ethel Waters. Well, how many people listen to Gene Autry? And yet Gene Autry was such a huge influence on so many of them. And, and again, the way in which uh, music crosses genres, art crosses genres, you know, uh, Solomon grew up just inspired by Gene Autry, among others. Also, Brother Joe May, you know, Thunderbolt of the Midwest, an incredibly cataclysmic performer. Uh, and Jerry Lee was also inspired by B.B. King. He says, man, if I could play the guitar like B.B. King, I'd be president. And Jerry Lee said that, having seen having seen B.B. Uh, uh, King at a, uh, not a roadhouse, but a cafe in, uh, in Faraday, Louisiana, called Haney's Big House, when he was 15 or 16 years old. So, I mean, the music just doesn't have any bounds. And the almost one of the two of the people who expressed most clearly their belief in the music's power and mission were Sam Phillips and Solomon Burke, both of whom genuinely believed 
that if people could just listen to the music, it could save the world. And so I hope people start listening soon. <laughs> Absolutely. And you mentioned the, the writer Lee Smith, and, and she's got a statement in here that you quote that I think is one of the key pieces of the book. Like when I first reading this, you know, music's obviously the focus of the show. I was tempted to skip over your chapters on writers, but when I read this, I realized, aha, that's why it's here, and it's very important. She says, um, empowerment is always at the expense of connection. It's the eternal conundrum of country music. It's the eternal conundrum of life. As you sing a song that arises from a particular place, quote, what you want, of course, is to be successful, and as soon as you're successful, that's never your place again. You're always singing of home, but you're never home. And I want to use that to introduce Dick Curlis, who uh, is a figure you write about at length in this book. He's not somebody I'd heard of before, and I really want to thank you for introducing me to him. The you know he was a, a middling successful country western singer from Maine, uh, which is pretty unusual. And I, I think that was sort of an obstacle to people getting him. Like, what kind of cowboy comes from Maine? But when you hear this song, and I'll, I'll we'll play it now. This is um, a tombstone every mile by Dick Curlis. In Maine, that's never ever ever seen a smile. If they buried all the truckers lost in them woods, there'd be a tombstone every mile. Count them off. There'd be a tombstone every mile. And that was Dick Curlis's signature hit, A Tombstone Every Mile. And, you know, it's one of the ironies of life, like reading this book, you talk about how you and Solomon Burke had discussed at length the idea that of you writing a biography comparable to your biography of Sam Cooke about Solomon, which obviously would be great, and you very much wanted to do, and he very much wanted to do, but it well, never worked out. That would be much better than the biography of Sam Cooke. <laughs> well, of course he did. <laughs> It's a simulator or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but he, um, you know, you never were able to put that together. I haven't yet because you just couldn't get Solomon Burke. Like, as you say, the, the present was very alive with Solomon Burke, but the future often receded in the distance and didn't come clear. But you did have the opportunity to spend a lot of time with Dick Curlis, who's somebody whose story might never have been documented. It's certainly not with this artistry. Had you not uh, gotten this connection through your son with him, tell us a little bit about Dick Curlis and why he was so important to you. Well, Dick Curlis was such an astonishing talent, and I hope you get a chance to play a, a track from his last album, Traveling Through, which really shows the unbridled uh, depths and, and uh, uh, aspirations of all of his music, as opposed to just a commercial success. But he, uh, he just had such a spiritual sense about him. I mean, the first time I met him to any degree, I'd known him for... I mean, I'd met him years ago, and I'd, and I'd seen him perform for 20, 20, 25 years. But the first time I met him to any uh, extent was at the session uh, that uh, my son Jake produced, which came to be called Traveling Through. Uh, and it was such an amazing session. I mean, Dick came into it with the idea that this was going to be, if not the summation of his life in music, it was going to be a far broader expression than anything he had ever been permitted to do before. And he came in with all these songs from his past, from his present, from his future. And what was amazing about it, he's a guy who had a rough life. I mean, this, you mentioned his being from Maine. 
He won the Arthur Godfrey uh, Talent Scouts show uh, contest, which Elvis had been rejected from. Um, he won that and uh, was on, I mean, there's on this Bear family collection of his uh, work, there are several uh, um, shows on, you know, recordings of that show. And Arthur Godfrey, Arthur Godfrey, perhaps another forgotten name, can't get over, says, he just couldn't get over the fact that you could have a country singer from Maine. How could that be? What an anomaly. But you only have to listen to Dick, and you only have to consider what country music is, which is the music of people who have no other means of expression, people who live in the rurals, as they say. In the case of Dick, who grew up in Fort Fairfield, Maine, it was filled with Acadians, you know, from who started off on their journey from Canada and didn't get any further than Maine, didn't get down to Louisiana. The music is similar, but the soul of the music has nothing to do with, the, with its commercial center, which became Nashville. It just has everything to do with the common experiences of the people who uh, live this life. And if you read, for example, the chapter on Lonnie Mack, you'll see a, a life which is an exact parallel both to Dick Curlis's and uh, to Merle Haggard's out in California and to somebody who grew up at Ernest Thompson, Texas. But the thing with Dick was the session uh, meeting him, he was such a commanding presence. He possessed such incredible uh, uh, calm. I was going to say charm, but it really was a calm that could set any, everybody at ease. And he provided such a direction, such a philosophical direction to a group of musicians, in some cases from different backgrounds to his. This is in, 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 at that final session. But uh, he just, uh, he elevated everybody. So that when he sang a song like... Um, since I Met You, uh, it was adapted from Ivory Joe Hunter's Since I Met You, Baby, and he sang it as Since I Met You, Jesus. He wanted everybody to make a contribution, and so he had uh, the um, drummer, uh, Billy, um, oh, uh, Billy Conway, he had the drummer take a solo. Now, Billy was not, Billy was a wonderful drummer, but not, he is a wonderful drummer, but not accustomed to taking solos. And, but he did his solo, and, and uh, uh, you know, as the bass player took his solo. Everybody took their solo, and Dick said, I just want you to express what's in you. And that's what people did. And when there were, there was a chorus on one of the songs, I think it was on Silent Night, which wasn't released, and everybody just sang their heart out. It didn't matter whether you, what the song meant to you before or what it was. Dick just inspired that in people, and that's what his music inspired in, in everybody who listened to it. But the story is, I mean, this is from the moment I met him there, you know, I spent four or five days uh, uh, at the session. Then I went to interview him at considerable length for over a couple of days in Bangor where he lived uh, with all these railroad, he had a railroad track outside and these uh, railroad cars that he had bought over the years. Uh, and uh, I interviewed him, and from and he died just two or three months later, in '95. And but from the time I met first met him, I thought I want to write about this person. But it was a very hard life that he described, and I never saw a place to write about it for. And in the end, when I finally this is 20 years later, when I finally decided to do this book, um, looking to get lost. I realized now I finally had a home for it, and I wrote it for the book, and it's really the centerpiece of the book. And it's it's, but it's a it's a chapter, a story, which took turns, which I would have liked to turn away from, 
which I didn't fully expect, which would do as difficult to write about it, about his alcoholism, about the difficulties of his life, about coming back from Korea where he served in 51, 52, or 52, 53, um, coming back with just a sense of being alien from everything around him, not being able to, uh, you know, not being able to understand, not being able to understand the world that he came back to, and feeling that nobody could understand him, and this going on for 30, 30 years. Uh, until he was finally born again, and even that was not a solution. And he was so insistent on telling the full story, on making it not a story just of redemption, but a story of truth and of, of life experience, like his sons, you know, a story of living and learning. Not, you know, he just was insistent. It's not a fairy tale world. It's not a world in which you have the white picket fence and the, you know, red, red roses growing on it or in which everybody just lives the life that they want to live. It's a life which is hard sometimes. And it was hard to write. And it was something that I, you know, that I worked hard on and that I hope stands as a tribute to a unique uh, spirit and somebody that, uh, you know, that uh, I, I think the world should know, should know more about, should know about. Uh, but, um, somebody who has the capacity with his music to inspire a kind of, uh, uh, just not a kind of belief, but, but just to inspire people, to inspire his, his listeners and elevate them in a way that uh, they might never have anticipated being elevated before. And that, that's what his, his music meant and means. And what's so great about that last album, Traveling Through on, on Rounder, is just it was unbound by any commercial constraints. It was unbound by any constraints of genre. It's just it's an expression of pure soul. And I want to thank you for introducing me to that record. I didn't pick any of the songs from that just because I didn't feel like a thirty second snippet could get it across. I I, I spent a couple of days reading this uh, your passage about Dick Curlis and listening to that album over and over again. It was an incredibly powerful experience. I recommend that album most highly to anybody who's at all interested. But I want to I want to read the opening quote of your Dick Curlis section. This is Dick Curlis saying, "At 18, I went out in the world. I thought I knew it all." On that tour, I was back in my home state of Maine and making $12, sometimes $15 a night. I thought, man, this is the life. This is it. But if I could go back and find that boy, knowing all the things that would happen to him, I'd tell him, boy, stay and sing with your family. They're not going to be there very long. Yeah, you stay home and sing. Be happy in your little town. We wouldn't, if he had done that, we wouldn't have that music. I mean, this, this, it always comes to this incredible cost to these performers. How, do you feel like it was worth it? Like, how do you judge? Well, that's like the Skip James experience. I mean, the question is, was it really worth it? And I think on some level, I mean, I think we all live on many different levels. And so when you say something like that, you're expressing a kind of nostalgia for the world that you came out of, for who you were. I mean, Lee Smith expresses the same sort of thing. Ernest Tubb expressed the same thing, you know, to me years and years ago. And, uh, you know, and I could express the same thing in a way at the end of my first book, Feel Like Going Home, I write that, okay, that's it. I'm going to say goodbye to this, you know, life of writing about music for now. I'm going to throw away my notebook and, you know, re-embrace the, the pure spirit that first motivated me to listen to the music. Well, I, I did. I did quit for two years, <laughs> and then I came back. And But the point is, you're not the same person uh, that you were before you engaged in this way that took you to a different place. And I, I think what 
what you try to do, what Dick Curl has, uh, did, what what Lee Smith has done in her novels, what so many, what Solomon did over and over and over again. You try to re-engage in different ways on different levels. And that there's no choice about that. And the thing is that you're driven by a kind of inspiration. You're driven by a kind of, uh, uh, you know, an aspiration to do something that's higher than just is on the plane that you're, you know, that you're, that you're existing on every day. And you do that and you do the best you can with it. And I don't think Dick would, I mean, if Dick had known everything that he knew at the end of his life, I don't think he would have changed his life at all. But within the chapter, you have Dick bringing uh, a, a youngish musician named Denny Bro, Lenny Bro's brother, Denny Bro, one of the most remarkable jazz stylists, uh, uh, you know, uh, of the 50s, of the 60s, 70s, a protege of Chet Atkins, uh, and uh, uh, died young, died a tragic death, very young. And Dick brings uh, Denny Bro, Lenny Bro's brother, to the session to give him an opportunity to decide what life do you want? Because Denny Bro had never left Maine. He's still in Maine. He's a great musician, but he has never left. And uh, I think Dick, at that point, Denny was saying, well, maybe I should go to Nashville. Maybe I should do this. And, and Dick brought him for reasons that nobody else knew at the time. I mean, he just showed up with Denny Bro. And he was doing this as an opportunity for Denny to see what that other world might be like and Denny, for Denny to make a choice. And I'm not sure Denny, I talked to Denny about this. I'm not sure that he fully understood the choice that he was being offered at the time. But that was what Dick had in mind. <clears throat> and I don't think Dick would have passed up what his world became, however difficult it was, you know, however challenging the forces that he faced at times. I don't think he would have given up the journey for any for anything. And, and Peter, uh, sorry we we talked your voice out, but um, the book is "Looking to Get Lost: Adventures in Music and Writing" by Peter Goralnik. It's been a real honor to have you on the show. Love the book. Love the conversation. Anytime you want to come back and talk about anything, you're always welcome. Peter Goralnik, ladies and gentlemen. Well, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Robert Gordon returns to talk with Nate about his book, It Came From Memphis. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Looking to Get Lost is published by Little Brown and Company. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. At the Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. 
During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com slash workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done.